The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Last week, um, if you weren't here, you might have been rafting or surviving the flood one way or the other. Um, so I, I talked last week, introduced this book, The Daily Office, and so we're going to talk about this more today. Um, I will say at the beginning here, uh, I recognize that July is kind of a month where people are in and out a lot, and then we add torrential you know, rainfall to that. Some people are you know, barely treading water last Sunday, uh, quite literally probably. Um, last, the beginning of July, we talked about spiritual gifts, and then last week and this week, we're going to talk about this book. I had planned to talk about small groups next Sunday. I, um, I will mention this at the end of the sermon, but if you guys feel like, hey, we need to revisit one of those, or I'd like for you to talk again, I'm happy to reiterate a sermon or to kind of repackage that so that we get the value of this and what's going on with this. Um, I'll explain it in a second, which is to say, I'm not married to doing the small group sermon next week, um, so if we can do it just, I'm totally fine. That being said... Um, we are going to talk kind of more around what this daily office thing is, and again, I'll explain that in a second. To do that, we're going to be looking at Matthew 6. If you have a Bible, you are invited to go there. If not, all the verses will, at one point or another during the sermon, be on the screen. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read our passage about prayer, and then we'll pray. This is Jesus in the very middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Starting in verse 5, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So, Father, as we pray these words that Jesus taught us to pray, as we meet here at the beginning of the week, in the morning, and celebrate the resurrection of our Savior over Satan, sin, and death, we ask that this story of who Jesus is, that is your faithfulness, would be the way our hearts are shaped to know you and love you and to receive your love and grace and mercy through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let me talk for a second about where my interest in this came from and then I'll explain what this is. Uh, some of you, obviously, uh, sitting in this room, you're aware we meet in the recovery center and so we. We interact on a weekly basis with just even the space of the need of our city that 
addiction and recovery are essential elements that we face as a city. I think that's true of every city, every town in America, but this is true of our town and our city, and that's why we meet here. This is something that our city is wrestling with, and so we meet here because addiction is real, and recovery is possible, and I'm not sure how familiar you guys are, but AA or the 12 Steps is probably the, the preeminent or the main way that the majority of people walk out their recovery. And as I've gotten to know my, recover, my friends in recovery, I serve on the board here, I, I talk a lot with people who are in recovery, as I myself benefit from the tools of recovery and figure out how I manage my own struggles with addictive personality type things. The 12 steps, that's, the thing about the 12 steps that's always impressed me is that if you today realize I wanna get sober and you show up tonight at seven o'clock to the NA meeting or to an AA meeting, effectively what happens when you walk in the door is, hi Jacob, thanks for being here. You sit in a meeting and you hear people talk through their dynamics of recovery and effectively they hand you the 12 steps and say, okay, you wanna get into recovery. These are the 12 steps of what needs to happen. Find a sponsor, do the steps, which is so incredibly simple and practical. That's not to minimize the power of the 12 steps, right? If you ever walk through the 12 steps or you read through the 12 steps, the, the, the steps three through eight basically are like take a moral inventory, work through your moral inventory with somebody that's trustworthy, make amends where you need to. It's, it's real stuff, right? But the thing that's always impressed me about the 12 steps is that basically it says, if you want to stop feeding this addictive cycle in your, in, your, in your life, you need to do something practical that helps you live out this new identity that you have of being sober. And when I look at what it means to be a Christian, especially in kind of our Protestant evangelical broad kind of culture, think about like, when somebody becomes a Christian, the, M- the MO or what we're told is, okay, come to church, give your money to the church, <laughs> listen to sermons. It's kind of like, it's big category stuff, or except for like the money stuff, maybe that's a bit manipulative at times. But it's not tangible in the way that if you're trying to get sober, Here's ten, there's tangible steps. That's the thing that I, I just continually come back to the Sermon on the Mount because when Jesus thinks about what it means to be a disciple, he's very tangible, very practical. And what we want to do this morning is we're going to kind of talk around what this book does for us. Because for me, when I thought about, okay, as King's Cross, when somebody becomes a Christian, how do I help them know what it means to be a disciple? Yes, I now believe in Jesus. Yes, I want to follow Jesus. But what does it mean for my life to be shaped? And often the tradition that we've come from is, here's your Bible, read it, pray, come to church. Okay, I don't know if you've ever tried reading the Bible from the back. It gets a little confusing. Um, I mean, Genesis is kind of a, a rocky ride. You know, it's pretty fun. Uh, you get to Exodus. All right, that's fun. Last half of Exodus is like building instructions, and then you get to Leviticus, and you're talking about like the plumbing of the, of the temple and the sacrifices and all this stuff, and it gets a little, you get lost. 
What this book does is it's a, it comes from a tradition in the Christian church that says you need to be, it, here is a form of prayer for the beginning of the day and the end of the day. Morning office, evening office. And don't get thrown off by the term office. It's, an, a Latin, it's from a Latin phrase. All it means is order, right? Just here's the order of the day. Start your day, end your day with prayer. And then it gives you steps of what to do with your prayer life. Which is how I've found it to be so similar in my experience to the 12 steps where here's what you do, now do this, and it does something to help shape your life in AA to walk in recovery. The goal of this is that it shapes your life to be woven into God's story of grace and mercy for you. <laughs> Miles is like so in on this, man. I think it's great. Um... Is that tracking where we're at right here? This is, this is a form of prayer. And what we said last week, and we're going to say it and reiterate that again this week. All may, some should, none must. Right? All may do this. Some should do this. What I want you to hear very clear at the beginning, none of you must do this. But I think the reason we're putting this out here and we want to talk through this is to say it gives us a form of prayer that helps shape our lives as disciples to know Jesus more. So what I want to do is uh, kind of state the main point that we want to cover this morning, and then we're going to kind of make some observations about this prayer that Jesus has in Matthew 6, and we'll kind of do a launching point here at, at, in the midway because of a, a question I got from one of the small, small groups. The daily office helps us to become people whose daily lives are shaped by God. That's, that's the main point of what I want us to walk away from this morning. The daily office helps us, right? It is not a command. Don't want you to hear that from me. But it helps us. And there's a strong encouragement in that to become people whose lives are shaped by the story of God. So I want to make some observations about uh, Matthew 6 and Jesus' teaching on prayer. So let's read this. Jesus' form of prayer. So... Jesus says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. But do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask them. But before you ask him, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You'll notice to begin with that Jesus contrasts basically praying for status, which is what he's talking about at the beginning, like praying out in public, that sort of thing. Commending prayer in private, but when he gets to talking about prayer, like what do you pray, he doesn't give it an acronym. I'm not sure how many of you have grown up or have been around kind of evangelical churches where they give it an acronym. There's nothing wrong with them. But can anybody kind of volunteer any an acronym you've heard of prayer? 
Anybody? Yeah, acronym. Am I saying it wrong? Acronym, an acronym. I'm sorry. I will go to speech therapy. Ac- your acronyms. Yes. Yeah. What does it stand for? Adoration. Confession. Thanksgiving. Supplication. What does supplication mean? Just for some of us who need a dictionary around. Right. Asking. Yeah. Right. So you, you adore, you adore God for who He is. You confess your sin. To, uh, you thank God for who He is, and you pray for the things that you need. Right? Anybody else? Any other acronyms, Mike? Yes. So uh, those are the two that I had in my notes. Good job, guys. <laughs> the, so my, Mike was saying. It's pray, it's the, the letters P-R-A-Y, praise, repent, ask, yield, right? So I want you to hear me. There's nothing wrong with that, but I do want to kind of say, what does Jesus do when they ask him, what does it mean to pray? He doesn't give categories. He gives words. Pray this. It's like saying, how do you declare yourself to be an American? Well, I, I'm an American. Generally, we would, I think, in the range of, like, the Pledge of Allegiance. Like, there's things, or, you know, knowing, like, the first line of the Constitution. Like, things like that that kind of, like, oh, this is kind of, like, what it means to be here. Right? When Jesus says pray, he says, pray like this. And pray this form of prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. Right? And so if we think about that with what Jesus is doing with the form of his prayer... Right, it's not too hard to kind of riff on this a little bit, but just to say, like, what does it mean that Jesus' form of prayer is, "Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name." Right. First of all, that's a line that just is so easily rooted in our memory. But then, it start, It's a prayer that starts with a declaration of our relationship with our with God is not, "O oh, deity in the sky, would you see us and, and hear us, please?" This is our sacrifice. Our Father, he's, he's high above, who art in heaven, how be your, your name, but you're our Father. Like, there's a relational declaration, which is such a, a, de- it's a, it's a, it's a trumpet-resounding cry of grace. God, you're our Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's a prayer that is built on saying, God, you have a kingdom of grace, and we want it here. We want it just as it is there, a kingdom of delight and joy and grace. We want that happiness and joy and grace here. Right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Right? In a certain sense, uh, amidst all of the uh, turmoils of the narratives of our culture and my own personal life, your kingdom. I want that story to be more woven into me. Give us this day our, our daily bread. Right? Our daily need, not only of just material, of material food, but our daily bread of, gosh, I need mercy constantly, God. I need mercy. Right? I, didn't, I didn't bake and make this bread of mercy. I need you to give it to me. Give me this bread of mercy. And forgive us our, our debts as we also have been, been, as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
I apologize. I have like in my head, I have the King James version that I've memorized. <laughs> and then I read the more modern translation, which is fine, obviously. But I just, but it, we want to be people who are shaped to be like God, who is a forgiving God. And lead us not to temptation and honest recognition of God. We have limitations. Help us to be people who know of those limitations and walk in submission to them. So I find it interesting that when we think about prayer, I think our inclination is to think it's for, for it to be true prayer. It must be free form, untold. We just need to kind of make it up on the spot. But when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, pray like this and use these words. Which brings us to the question of how do we walk that? What does it mean to live in a, this is a, a form of prayer or a liturgy, to use the, the church word, the liturgy, a, a set ritual of prayer versus the dead ritual that some of us might experience or fear? And I guess to kind of push on the dead ritual part of it, of like, there's a, the concern of like, well, if we prescribe anything to say in prayer, it's going to become dead ritual. I just want to ask. When we go to see the Red Sox play, what song do we all sing at the top of our lungs, at the bottom of the seventh, before the eighth inning? Sweet Caroline. Sweet Do you know where that song came from? I looked at it. The, the... Right. <laughs> go for it, Drew. <laughs> do you know where that came from? It was the, the guy who ran the, the sound booth in 95. His friend had had a child whose name was Caroline, and that's why he what do you guys sing when you go to a football game? You know all the chants, right? I went to Auburn University. I'm somewhere in the recesses of my mind, I know those chants. Or when we go to summer camp, some of us are going to summer camp this summer. We all sing those hokey camp songs, right? <laughs> or to make it go from those big things to when you walk in the door at your house, where do you put your keys? Where do you set your purse? Where do you put your bag? What's the first thing you do? There's an order to how we kind of live these meaningful kind of transition periods of our lives or meaningful moments. If I say, dearly beloved, what's the next line? See, it would almost be like we have rituals of meaningful moments that, that words shape who we are. So when it comes to prayer, the encouragement is to say, just because it's a form of prayer and because it's a prescribed form of prayer does not mean that it's a dead form of prayer. Right? It may not be profound all the time, but it does give us something to pray. And as we said last week, part of the reason for having a form of prayer is that when we do not want to pray, the form of prayer prays for us. So, with that being said, I think we're just kind of, I want to circle back again to something else here in this passage. Jesus' assumptions about prayer. And we're going to kind of, if you're okay with it, we're going to do a little bit of a Bible trend, uh, tangent. I promise it will relate to the passage. You guys cool with that? I'm getting head nods, yes. Just for the record, everybody, two thumbs up from Blake over here. Okay, I want to com- comment on one thing. You notice here, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, how would be your name? This is a grammar question. Is that pronoun singular or plural? 
I'm sorry? Plural? Yeah, sorry, it's an easy, it, it's an obvious. Yeah, yeah. Our Father who art in heaven, you'll notice there, 11, give us this day our daily bread. It's fascinating to me that when Jesus teaches us to pray, he doesn't teach us to pray privately. It's not my Father in heaven, though that's certainly true, right? We actually read in Galatians, right? The Spirit teaches us to say from our hearts, my Father, Abba Father. But here, when Jesus teaches us, I mean, he says, if you're going to be my disciple, pray like this, our Father. It's fascinating me to consider, how does that shape the meaning of these prayers when it's not Jacob Young at, you know, X o'clock in the morning, pray like this. It's Jacob as a part of a church or Jacob as a part of a community. We all, our Father. It's fascinating to think that the form of Jesus, the assumption that he makes is, if you're praying to your Father in Heaven, you are not the only one. You are part of a community. You are part of a people that prays this together. Give us this day our daily bread. It is our faith, not just my faith. It's something that I'm, I'm brought into, this global community of God's goodness. So, one question from the MCs that I got about this that I want to I want to speak to and then we're going to circle back and see how it's a part of Jesus' assumptions in this prayer. The question went something like this. Where does the Bible teach us a corporate rhythm of prayer times? Which is a valid question, right? What we're saying here is this daily office teaches us or equips us to pray morning and evening. And I think the appropriate question is to say, show me that in the Bible, the expectation or the pattern of morning and evening prayer. So I'm going to do a quick overview and I will cover about 3,000 years of church history and then we'll circle back to the passage. In the book of Exodus, after Moses gets the law, if we can put this up here, one of the next kind of slides here, Exodus 29 now, this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year, one, day, uh, old, uh, one year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at night, or twilight, so the evening. So this is where, in a sense, the, the expectation of corporate worship begins to have a morning and evening edition, effectively. And then 1 Chronicles 16, when David gets the, gets the tabernacle, if you're not familiar with Bible history, the Ark of the Covenant is not where it's supposed to be. So David goes and gets it, brings it back, and he's going to put it in the tabernacle, which is a gigantic kind of like, think of like a carnival tent, like a huge tent. That's where he's going to put it, not to make the tent a carnival, but just the idea. And David left uh, Zadok, the priest, and his brothers, the priest, before the tabernacle of the Lord on a high place that was at Gideon to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offerings regularly, morning, and evening. And many scholars view this as the beginning of a tradition in the Jewish community of you had sacrifices at the temple and then out in the various synagogues within the community, morning and evening prayers. That's kind of where that happened. Then we're going to pop over to the Psalms. Here we have in the Psalms, in the morning, Psalms that have uh, verbiage about praying in the morning. Right? I don't know if I'm going to read all of these verse by verse, but verse Psalm 5, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. Psalm 21, 
a, a, a song concerning the morning aid, right? So we're aiding in morning worship. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning, right? That's not clearly teaching us that we have to pray in the morning or that we should pray in the morning. Awake my soul, awake harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. So here's Psalm 57. I will awake in the morning with prayer. But, O Lord, I cry out, but I, O Lord, cry out to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you, Psalm 88. Next slide there. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, Psalm 92. Declare your steadfast love in the morning, Psalm 19, 119, 147. Arise before dawn and cry for help, Psalm 143. Let, my, let me hear of your steadfast love in the morning, right? Regular con- uh, verses in the Psalms, all talking about prayer, kind of this form or expectation uh, of prayer. The evening Psalms, Psalm 6, I am weary of my, my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Psalm 16, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. Psalm 42, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night his song is with me. Again, these are just this is the, this is the a a form of just showing that the Psalms have this shape of morning and evening spiritual life. Right? When I think of you on my bed, I remember my songs in the night. Next slide. Tend your steadfast love in the move morning, your faithfulness in the nights. At midnight I will praise you. My eyes are awake before each watch of the night. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. So basically, anybody who watches for the morning is up all night. Idea being, I pray it. And then what's key psalms here, and we'll kind of pause on this for a second. Psalm 19, 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. And then Psalm 55, this is the, the, I will say this is going to be a key verse for us. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan. And he hears my voice. He redeems my soul and safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. Now let me pause there. And I just want to say, these are all just to show that the shape of spiritual life, of discipleship in the Psalms and in the Old Testament up to this point, basically says people who followed God in the Old Testament, they, they had regular morning and evening times of prayer. They began and ended their day with prayer. The expectation was that that's the way all of God's people followed him. They prayed in one form or another. I mean, Psalm 55 is so important in Jewish thinking that after this, after kind of, again, talking about Bible history, God's people get kicked out of their land. They go to a foreign land. And it's so ingrained, that Psalm 55 is so ingrained into the, the life of God's people that Daniel... A part of what gets him in trouble when he's out in, in, uh, in Babylon is that he's known for doing Psalm 55, right? Daniel 6 has basically this picture of the king saying, nobody will pray to any other god. Daniel 6 says explicitly, as Daniel always does, he got up in the morning to pray. And he wasn't like theatrical about it, but people just knew. That was a don't bother Daniel in the morning, midday, evening. So that by the time we get to what's called the intertestamental period, right, those 400 years before Jesus shows up, it's, a, it's ingrained in the Jewish life, the, uh, the Jewish culture, that they prayed morning, midday, and night. Now, there's different reasons for why they did it, but, they all, but it was a part of their, their kind of collective life together. 
I, I wonder, just to kind of throw this in there, as people are kind of, as Moses and others are writing the Old Testament, I wonder if that's a part of when you look back at Genesis 3 and it says that Adam, or that God walked with Adam in the cool of the evening, that there's some sort of picture of evening prayer wrapped up in that idea. It's one of those things where once you start to kind of notice this pattern of morning and evening prayer, it starts kind of showing up as a, oh, this is a, an essential part of what God's people have always done. Because then when you see the life of Jesus here, let's pop over here. Jesus arising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, departed out and went out to a desolate place in there prayer. Matthew 14. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Or Mark 6. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. Or Luke 6. Uh, when we, we just looked at a few weeks ago. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. Now, the expectation being, he regularly went out to pray at evening, and this time, he stayed up all night to pray. Right, you notice that Jesus, we can kind of read these verses and think, well, he's setting a pattern. Jesus is, is not setting a pattern. He's, he's continuing a pattern that's always been there for God's people in the Old Testament that's been a part of the Jewish culture, he's continuing this pattern of morning and evening prayer so that even by the time his apostles come along, you can just throw up a few verses here, the apostles, their hours of prayer, right? Pentecost happened at the third hour. Peter and John prayed in the ninth hour. Cornelius prayed the ninth hour. This is all built on this Roman idea of the 12 hours of the day. Those 12 hours, effectively, the third hour was 9 a.m., the sixth hour was 11 a.m. The ninth hour was 1.30 a.m. And it's interesting that you can track the crucifixion narrative of Jesus. It, the, the Gospels go out of their way to comment. At this hour, Jesus was crucified. At the ninth hour, he breathed his last. So that when we get to the post-apostolic period, we have in which a book called the Didache. I'm not, there's other pronunciations of it. The Didache, which is dated from around 75 A.D. to 150 A.D. So basically, the apostles died, and their besties wrote this book of, like, here's what it means to be a disciple. They have explicitly in that, it says, pray three times a day. Pray the Lord's Prayer, pray three times a day. Monastic period around the 4th century, they picked up on Psalm 19, where it says, I pray seven times a day. They developed that in a whole system of praying seven times a day. Reformation comes along, and basically... Archbishop Thomas Cranmer of the English Isles, right, Anglican Communion, he, uh, he basically says, okay, we need to simplify this back down to morning and evening for God's people. I put a picture of here just because I think it's pretty cool. Uh, that's a genuine photograph. That's actually him. Uh-huh. So, sorry. I just thought that beard was pretty sick, so it needed a little bit of some... But Archbishop, yeah... <laughs> Archbishop Cranmer brings it back down to two forms of morning and evening, and the morning and evening office is what we have before us. Right? It, it's this structure of our day to pray. Now, what's fascinating, I just want to point out one more thing, and, and then we'll kind of keep a few thoughts on this. Back to this. When Jesus says, and when you pray, do not heap up, heap up empty phrases, the Gentiles do. Pray like this. 
I think that we can look at this and see Jesus is just filling in a tradition within God's people that already exists. And it's important to note as well, Jesus never criticizes the Jewish uh, devotional life at this time. Jesus criticizes the way pastors or priests or rabbis had gotten God wrong, had taught people wrong things. Their ceremonial stuff had gotten all out of whack. But the devotional life, the spiritual life of God's people at the time, Jesus never criticizes them. Which means that when we think about this pattern of morning and evening prayer in the Jewish life at the time, Jesus is basically just saying like, yep, just fill this in. Here's how to adjust this for the new community that I'm building. Not, here's a whole brand new thing. Jesus is generally not doing a whole brand new thing. He's generally correcting and modifying things that have already existed. So that when we come to this and he says, pray like this, people, people know what he means. So that when he says, don't be like the hypocrites who pray out you know, in, in the corners and marketplace, we actually see that what he's talking about is a pattern that they would have had. Right? They would have had the pattern of praying morning, midday, and evening. And Jesus saying, don't be like those hypocrites who go out, who purposely like, oh, I, I'm in the middle of Elm Street. I must do my morning prayer right here so that everybody can see me and see how spiritual I am. Jesus is like, no, don't be ridiculous. Go home, do that in your private space. Don't make a big deal out of it. But Jesus is commending prayer that's regular. What do you think this pattern, I want to, this is a genuine, I would pause and just kind of some interaction here. What do you think this pattern of morning and evening prayer, what does it invite us into? How does it shape us? What does it do for us? It's a regularity to your day that actually is a focus not on yourself. It's actually structured. I'm going out of my way to structure my way around God, around God and his story and his day effectively, right? It's, it's inherently a humble posture, right? I mean, just... I like my day on my time, on my schedule. I'd like to, what would it, how would it, how does it reshape me? It makes me, it forces me into a place of I'm having to, to reckon with, I am not the one who, who writes the day God is. We actually are receiving mercy when we pray, right? We need that regularly a part of our daily life the way we need regular breathing. It offers us a regular pause in our day. We live in a culture where it's just, there's so much chatter and noise, and it offers us a moment to pause. It opens our hearts to God's activity. Actually, you guys have all said these things. And it, it makes us regularly aware of our need for God. I'm going to finish out here by some thoughts on Jesus' goal of prayer. But I will say, in this, the daily office, what we have here in front of you, there are, there's a morning and evening, and then in there is two short, they're called morning and evening short, or short morning and evening, I can't remember exactly what I said, um, or what Aaron and I called it, but the morning and evening short version, if you read through that and pray through that, five, ten minutes max. The daily office, like the full version, maybe 20, 30 minutes, like I've, I've done it where I'm like, my mind completely gets like, I'm lost on like the latest, you know, 
Avengers spoiler thread mental loop in the middle of prayer, which of course is clearly spiritual and godly. But, um, and I come back, and even with all those kind of like mental, I lose my, tra- I lose my train of thought, I don't know where I'm, where I'm at. Oh, I come back to this, okay. Back on track, praying, 30 minutes most. So, this offers us a couple different versions. And I just want to revisit, last week, um, the one comment was, oh, I didn't realize I was supposed to pray through all the pages of a morning office. And I want to revisit what I said there and say, it's okay if you look at this and you're like, I just want to pray a couple pages. Start somewhere, if this is just to make this accessible for you. I realize this is new. Just praying one or two pages of it, or three pages, working up to, eventually, if you want, the whole kind of what's offered to you in each form of prayer. But it's, it's, a, it's a guide. It's not a regulation, so to say. So it's, a, it's designed to equip you as best we can for regular prayer. Let me just kind of visit here verse six, 7 and 8 of Matthew 6, and we'll talk through Jesus' goal of prayer. Verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. I think it's interesting to, to consider, before Jesus tells us how to pray and the words to pray, he basically says, God knows what you need before you ask. So it can, he, he preemptively kind of offers this question of then, then why pray? Like when we think of praying, like we think about that Acts thing, right? Adore, I forget what it is, confess, thanksgiving, supplication, right? Sorry. So that supplication part, like he basically says, God knows what you need before you ask him. So then you can naturally ask, like, so then why even ask God for, for things or about things or whatever? And it's almost as though Jesus is saying, the point of prayer is not what you ask, but who you're talking to. Right? The point of prayer is not what you're asking, but who you're with. The point of prayer is not what you get to tell God, but the fact that you get to be with God. And He is shaping you. I'll say... In my life, this has been a stabilizing presence. I'm not sure how many are familiar with kind of my own personal life in the last few years, but before 2020, we were going through a lot of difficulty with our previous denomination, and I effectively um, was invited to leave our, our previous denomination where I had friendships of 12 years or more. So it's 12 years of friendships who are like, you're not one of us anymore. Goodbye. Right up into 2020. Obviously, there was a lot that went on in 2020. But for us as a church, our friend Bill passed away. He was effectively the co-planter of the church. Good friends of mine moved away. And at the end of that, I just felt like I had no bearing of where's my spiritual life, my spiritual community broadly, not the local church here, kind of invited to leave. You're not one of us anymore. My closest friends were gone one way or the other. And I think the only book I read in 2020 was the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, which is where this comes from. 
I find in the daily office a way to be a Christian when I don't want to be a Christian. I think that's the, I don't know if that's like a great sales pitch. <laughs> but I found, I found myself in a place where I was just like, I am so tired of all these Christians in this nonsense. But I can't get over the resurrection. It actually happened. And Jesus is true and real despite what all these people who claim to follow Jesus are saying. And I found in the daily office a home within the faith of people who have prayed. I mean, some of these prayers in this daily office are 1,500 years old. (laughs) I mean, it just makes my words feel cheap when you consider, like, some, some of these prayers have been prayed in meaningful, profoundly shaping, spiritual, life-giving ways for almost two millennia. That's not to kind of diminish the value of my own personal thoughts and prayer, but just to say, like, this is a home of where Christians have found life with God, and I find that community, that if you think of, like, not just our local church, but all people who have ever believed in this God for millennia, they all worship him. And there's a certain sense in by praying their prayers with me, I'm kind of like rising up into the spiritual community of people who have long since gone to be with Jesus. And their, their spiritual life has sustained me. This prayer life has sustained me and given me a way of being a Christian when it's not so fun. Right? That it seems like the form of what Jesus gives us in this prayer of the Lord's Prayer is to say... Here's words to pray when you don't know what else to pray. And it also informs what to pray when you do know what to pray. He gives us a home to pray. That prayer is less to be about spontaneity, although that's important. More about finding a place of life with God. I want to end with this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's actually a commentary on worship. But I think you'll understand what I mean when I say this applies to our prayer life as well. C.S. Lewis said this in a a letter to a fictional friend. Novelty, simply as such, can only have an entertainment value. But they don't go to a church, that's people in general, people don't go to church to be entertained. They go to use the service, or or if you prefer, to enact it. Every service is a structure of acts and words through which we receive a sacrament or repent or supplicate or adore. It enables us to do these things best, if you like. It works best when, through long familiarity, we don't have to think about it. As long as you notice and have to count the steps, you are not yet dancing, but only learning to dance. A good shoe is a shoe you don't notice. Good reading becomes possible when you need not consciously think about eyes or light or print or spelling. The perfect church service would be one where we were almost unaware of our attention would, be, um, would have been on God. His point being, prayer is most profoundly prayer when we don't have to think about the steps of prayer. Right? When we learn to dance, if you ever learn, I'm not going to enact that drama right now. I don't get paid enough to do that. But if you're learning to dance, you're learning the steps, and you're still figuring out what it means to do the dance, whatever it is. But the point of learning to dance is not so that you can count the steps. 
but so that you can enact this drama with a person, right? whoever your dancing partner is, swing dancing, whatever. Like I, you're wanting to do the dance with somebody. That's what he's saying about prayer, and he's commenting specifically on worship, but I think it's true about prayer. The reason we have forms of prayer is not so that we can pay attention to the steps of prayer, but so that we learn how to get into this dance of prayer with God. So we learn, okay, I've, I've learned the steps. Now I, I just, I get God himself. That's the purpose of forms of prayer. So my, here's my encouragement. If you're hesitant about this, give it one month. Try it. Start with the daily office of short one. Just do that. Five minutes. Even just start with just the morning. I would say as well, if you're looking through this, you'll see like the, the stand, sit. Put that stuff on the back of the list. Just focus on the prayers. But try it for a month. See, see what it feels like. How would your life be shaped? And how, would, how are you going to benefit from trying this morning, evening for a month? Are you going to get hurt? Anybody going to get hurt by doing the daily office morning, evening? I don't think so. You will probably benefit. So how would it benefit you? What type of person are you going to, what type of disciple are you going to be shaped into by praying morning and evening for one month? Just try it. Also, I would say for our small groups, take that evening office in the next month. Try it as a small group. Divide it up. Say, who's going to pray? We're going to pray in what order? What personal prayers can we pray? Who are the people that we can be praying for? Those types of things. Put that in there as a small group. Give it a shot. One time a month. Actually, I think if you're small, if for a small group, it's just to consider doing this once a month. How would that shape us as a community where we're getting the kinks out? We're getting overcoming the awkwardness of it, talking about it, and then just doing it together. It gives us a way of kind of like doing the first try in a group setting where it's like, oh, this isn't so awkward. Everybody else struggles to do this too. You know, like that type of thing, right? Do it as a small group once a month. Try it out. Give it a shot. But the point, again, reminding us, all may, some should, none must. You don't have to do this. I hope you don't hear me kind of laying on all the Bible verses. You do not have to do this. God loves you whether you do or don't. This is designed to be a tool to equip you as a disciple. What does it mean to follow Jesus and to pray? In, any, in a meaningful way. Maybe you already have a system, great, go for it, keep at it. I'm not trying to interrupt that. This is a way of being shaped into a disciple who knows God's story and lives in his story every day. Let me pray for us, and then I'll turn to questions. God, we're grateful for your, your kindness to us. We're grateful for the ways that you care for us. And God, we want to be people who don't think about the steps of what it means to pray or think about the steps of worship, but come and know what it means to simply know you and look and pray with you and be with you. So Father, would you change us by your spirit to be people who know you and love you and experience your presence with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. 
please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.